0: Hi, this is Tokyo U.S. Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I've got a real treat for you today. Nancy Fiddler came late to elite ski racing, having had started skiing in college. Her World Cup career started when she was 31 years old. Despite this, Nancy won 14 U.S. National Championship titles. She participated in both the 1988 and 1992 Olympic Games. At the 1991 World Championships in Lotte, Finland, she finished 15th place. Nancy also coached and worked in the ski industry at Mammoth Mountain. Recently, Nancy, in a collaboration with others, finished the book Trail to Gold, which tells the story of the U.S. female Olympic Nordic ski racers. Hi, Nancy. I'm really excited to be with you here today and for you to um, to basically expose you to the U.S. skiing public because I'm really excited. Um, I think you've got a legacy and you've, you're someone I've looked up to for many, many years now, and I'm kind of excited to show them what I see in you.
1: Well, thank you, Ian. It's, it's really nice to be here.
0: I consider you to be a, a quote unquote all time great. And I, I don't actually, I haven't called anyone else that. So, um, but I consider you being an all time great and on the on the same level as the absolute top Nordic skiers that our country has ever produced. And, uh, and I'm, I'm gonna make that case with you today too in case people don't know you. Um, you inspired me from back in the day in the late 80s and continue to do so today. So this is a real treat for me, and I'm hoping that um, it's a real treat for other people too.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to you, Ian.
0: Okay. So let's start out with where you grew up and how and when you started skiing.
1: So I grew up, I was born in Schenectady, New York. So that's upstate New York and in ski, ski country, but I didn't, Ski until my family was living in New York state, down in Westchester County. So we moved about every four years from my dad's job. So we went from upstate New York to Wisconsin, back to New York, which is where my family decided to begin alpine skiing. So my parents were in their forties and they hadn't skied. And so we all started together, all the kids and the parents. And we went to some funny little family owned resorts around uh, New York and lower Vermont and New Hampshire. And again, we got really into it. So uh, we did that all during high school. And uh, I went to college. Um, I went to, I finished high school in Weston, Massachusetts, which is kind of ironic since there's Nordic skiing there now. And, and there wasn't before, but there were no Nordic ski teams <clears throat> uh, at my high school. I don't even think they had women's cross country running then. But I when I went to college at Bates in Maine, I um, was recruited for the ski team my sophomore year and that was my introdu- introduction to cross country skiing.
0: So previous to Bates College and Bob Flynn who was the coach at the time, you had no you had never cross country skied before.
1: No, I like I said we alpine skied and I ice skated, you know, we were we grew up outdoors in the winter my my family I had three brothers and we did all the winter stuff but um it just wasn't available it wasn't anywhere that I was. And I so it hadn't occurred to me to start it. I was um in high school a three sport athlete but I did field hockey, uh, I was a diver on the swim team and I was a lacrosse player. So I did three varsity sports, but, but skiing, like I said, wasn't available. So yeah, it was my first exposure when they were looking for women to join what was then a division two uh, team and title IX played heavily into that recruiting because they were really, they had a men's team, but they were, the women's team was maybe a year or two old and they were just looking for anybody. I mean, I, they had to have been looking for warm bodies because I certainly didn't have a resume. I was just somebody who looked maybe strong and
0: outdoorsy. (laughs) So was this, I'm just guessing, around 75, 74 when you started? Uh,
1: Yeah, I started at Bates in 74, so it would would have been the winter of 75, 76. Cool. And it was right when Bill Koch won his medal. And uh, I was, yeah, so skiing had just kind of, it was just getting more well recognized anyway and i you know small school like Bates. if you wanted to do a sport for the most part you you know you could join a team and have some kind of um experience so we had a funny little team and um hank lang was our coach I and bob he,
0: Flynn
1: was well hank lang was the nordic coach and bob Flynn was the head ski coach okay. so he was kind of in charge of alpine and nordic but he went to the races and stood at the wax table and cheered for us and was a great supporter of of nordic but um yeah so hank hank taught taught me how to ski on a soccer field at bates
0: so we got anything else to say about your ski career at bates and in the circuit
1: uh yeah well we were like i said we were in this division two league which was pretty funky you know it was Nothing special. I mean, we would go to races, and I sometimes I don't even think they groomed the trail. It was kind of a skied-in trail, and um, it was a bunch of the smaller schools. I think you know Colby and Bowden were women were part of that, and you know, Keene State and Plymouth State, uh, Farmington. There were some little schools that w- weren't in the Division One at that point. And Is Johnson
0: State in your league?
1: Yes, Johnson State. Yep. That's how I met Jim Fredericks. Yep. And, uh, yeah, so we had a, you know, a little league and it wasn't, I like, must not have been too competitive because I walked out two weeks after learning how to ski and I won my first race. And, um, that's when I kind of went, Oh, wow. <clears throat> maybe, maybe this is a thing for me. I, I know there's aerobic ability in my family. So I, I guess I just didn't recognize it until, you know, I just put a bib on and went. So there was no reason for me to be a winner in terms of technique because I was terrible. So you know, I just went out there and went, so um, did my best,
0: but it didn't look good. (laughs) So my understanding is over those three years that you competed, you didn't lose a single collegiate race.
1: I did not. And I was fortunate in that I was, um, that position allowed me to go to the um, trials to make the AIAW national championships. So I think in 1977 uh, was my first chance to do that. And I qualified to go to the, um, the A- it was called AIAW. It wasn't called NCAA back then. And it was our collegiate nationals. And so I qualified to go to Stowe, Vermont and race in those races. And I, think, I think I got, mm, I got maybe an eighth place in that. And the next year I qualified again and it was at um, Angel Fire, New Mexico. And I got, a, I think a fourth place in that. So yeah, it was pretty cool. And that's, I met a lot of, a lot of people I still consider to be very close friends today, um, skiing in college and having those experiences. And it was, I have to say it was it was amazing it was great and and like I said when looking back it was maybe perfect that I got this start I had an opportunity to ski and to learn to ski on a team that just you know had there were no expectations and it was um nothing but fun it really was
0: yeah but and that's great but b- despite the low-key atmosphere and the fun element you're now a Bates legend and they've honored you um first female Olympian, I think, but you were also undefeated during your collegiate career, which makes you a legend, a Bates legend. And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, you were having fun and it was low key, but you were incredibly successful in, in, um history making. So that's really awesome. Well, thanks.
1: Like I said, I wasn't aware of any of that when it was going down, but, um, you know, for me, it was just having the opportunity. I wouldn't, I might, you know, today, I don't think anybody could possibly pull that off. So I feel very fortunate.
0: So I have a question for you. And this is because I grew up in Carlisle, which is right next to real close to Weston. Um, when you went home for Christmas, where did you ski? You know, like during the holidays, you went home sometimes, I imagine. Did you ski during the winter?
1: Okay. So yeah, we, you mean for like Christmas break,
0: right? Um, yeah, I mean, was there anywhere that you skied? I, I, there was a place in Carlisle that we skied called Poles Field it was um just skied in there were no tracks but we skied them in and then any given weekend you'd find a few I don't know four or five hundred people there just skiing around this field and these woods near the Johnstones if you've heard of the Johnstone family they they kind of pioneered that whole thing just amazing never,
1: never heard of it in fact um our family had a little cottage on uh, Lake Sunapee in southern New Hampshire so I would go home for Christmas. And then our team would always have a camp at our, our family's cottage. So we would men's and women's team would always tiny little place, cram in there and make meals together and go training over. in. um, it's a little funny little place in Grantham. I forget what East, I forget what they call it, but a little Nordic center over there. And that's where I trained in vacation. And then my family moved when I was uh, midway through college, they moved to Connecticut. So I never skied
0: at home. That wasn't something I did. I would go somewhere else and ski. Hmm. Okay. So after you graduated from Bates, probably in 1979, I'm thinking? 78. 78, as an English major. (laughs) (laughs) um, You were hoping to make the 1980 Olympic team. Where did you live and train between when you graduated and the Olympics a year and a half approximately later, the Olympic trials.
1: Okay, so I, yes, I was told by a few people that I should try and keep up my skiing after college, and they're, you know, the national team system was they they didn't have much of a system. There was a, you know, it was Allison and Cokey and a few notables of that caliber and. Then there was kind of there that was an A team and there was probably a B team, and there were a bunch of us who didn't really have any designation. but in the national rankings, you know, we were ranked, you know, after the top ten. We were all, I think I was ranked twelfth that year. and we didn't have um, really much of a system. I think we were told if we could get ourselves to a training camp, we could go. and I did go to a spring camp in 78 right before I graduated um, in Grand Targee. but otherwise we they kind of cut everybody loose and things were divided up regionally so I was part of this northeastern region and Bud Fisher was in charge of that and he would mail us these training logs and so in the summer I trained at our family's cottage in New Hampshire and had a couple jobs there and then um, come winter I got a semi-job at Trap Family Lodge. So a friend of mine and I decided that we needed to just live where we could ski. And so we had a deal from then director Ned Gillette. um, And he uh, was, of course, you know, his own, he was an icon, right? He was his own legend. And we, he allowed us to, to live at the Trap Family Lodge and get meals and we could train and all we had to do is work at the ski center when we, you know, when we could. So it was kind of like we'd get in there in the morning and we had rent, wooden rentals and we would kick wax all the skis, you know, from tip to tail and do stuff like that, you know, maybe clean the floors or something Then I'd go out, train and come back and maybe take a little kid's lesson out or, you know, so it was pretty casual. So we trained that winter and went to races. And so that winter was the, so that was 78, 79. So that was the pre-Olympics at Placid. So we went to that. That was my first pretty big international experience. And
0: yeah. This is fun. So first off, Bud Williams, the, the person you referred to, Bud Williams, he was a long time. Bud, Bud Fisher. Bud, Bud, Bud Fisher. The longtime Williams college coach. Yeah. And then Ned Gillette. Uh, I think most people probably don't know who Jed, Ned Gillette is that listening because they're too young but he's yeah. as you said a legend outdoor legendary outdoorsman all around skier as well as really fast cross-country skier um and the winner of 79 did you for example to participate in the dannon series races i believe the dannon series was going on then. absolutely was that, yeah washington's birthday race and do you ever do you ever heard of the paul Revere cup did you participate in those races
1: no, I don't remember that one, but we were definitely on the Dan and circuit and we ate a lot of Dan and yogurt. <laughs> and oh yeah
0: Cup was in Fort Devons, Massachusetts. Uh, it was one of the two biggest races in New England, along with the Washington's birthday race.
1: Uh, didn't didn't get to that, but I remember traveling all over and doing those Dan and doing the Danon series. Yeah. Oh, that's yep. nice.
0: um, okay, then let's talk about 1980. You didn't make the team. And I know you've got some thoughts and some comments on kind of where you were as a skier. I I think you probably felt a little bit set up for failure because you weren't being coached. You didn't have a lot of knowledge. You know, you want to talk about that?
1: Yeah. So like I said, Bud was extremely helpful. I didn't, you know, the thing was he would send me a training log and it would say like, you know, do hillbounding. I didn't even really know what it was. Right. You know what I mean? I was in college. I didn't, I didn't train in the summer for skiing. I, I didn't know you were supposed to, right? So um, yeah, so there was just, a, a lot of it was tough, but I was fortunate to have Marty Hall nearby uh, when he was living in Hanover. Hmm. And I was at my parents' uh, cottage and Marty was really generous to me. And I think he saw something in me and he would invite me uh, into Hanover and I, you know he was also coaching leslie bancroft and so sometimes he'd get us together and that's when i met leslie who later became one of my teammates she was on the baby blue team at that time Our, even though she was younger than i i really looked up to her and i thought she was pretty amazing but um yeah, so i remember, remember. Yeah. in particular marty took me to the gym and he said okay show me any, show me how many pull-ups you can do well, you know i got on the bar and i just hung there And oh, how many dips can you do? You know, I couldn't do a single, I couldn't do anything. So I felt like, wow, you know, I didn't know you were supposed to be able to do all this stuff. So I went back and I told my dad and I said, gosh, you know, I need to do this. And he built me a little outdoor gym and it was, it was sweet. Yeah. It was really nice. So to show his support. And I started doing a little bit of training, but I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't, have any technique and and we were left on our own I mean we would go to these races and there was just a bunch of us who were kind of outsiders but were really into it and we kind of took care of each other and uh you know we would ask oh what what's the wax so we don't have that or you know we would just wax our own (laughs) skis and we didn't expect to get support and so I guess I didn't have I didn't have really much confidence going into anything and at that point I'd skied for what four or five years and there was really no reason for me to be making an Olympic team yeah. in 1980.
0: <laughs> so after the 1980 Olympics you pretty much stopped skiing and you moved out west?
1: Yeah, so I got really discouraged. We were I was trying to work at traps again and it was a winter of no snow and so we were having a hard time training. I think we went up to Mount St. Anne, you know, and did some training and racing up there. And I, I kind of just, I was not stoked. So I thought, well, maybe this isn't for me. And, and I moved with my friend, Janet Kellum. Uh, We moved out to Ketchum and she had connections there. And so, yeah, we, we worked, um, worked and I didn't ski at all. And, um, I had like two dishwashing jobs and partied a lot and had some fun and uh yeah but so okay the other piece of this is i came to california a little before that so in 79 i i decided i'd follow this group of people back to to yosemite and this is um This is because the whole Trapp Family Lodge staff was from California. They were all from Yosemite because Ned Gillette had been the uh, ski school director at the Yosemite Mountaineering School prior to his position at Trapp. So here were all these climbers and they had these great slideshows, pictures of Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite. And I just said, I have to go. So summer of 79, jumped in my VW Rabbit, went out and got a job at Tioga Pass. And you know, hung out with a bunch of climbers and learned how to climb and learned how to go into the mountains. And and so I did that. And then and then came the winter of '80 when I didn't you know make the Olympic team. And I hadn't been too serious about cross country training. I was playing in the mountains, and so I wasn't that disappointed. So then out I went to Ketchum, and then back to back to Yosemite and in the summers and that's that's how i came to california was going to tioga
0: pass in the summers so then take us through the next couple years because this, in my mind the next couple years i think were very important to you for your development and finding yourself i think anyway
1: yeah so so i got so i met claude my husband claude and he's he was a climber in tuami and so you know we got together and I continued to work summers at Tioga Pass Resort. And then we started going to Bear Valley in the winters and renting a place and working, you know, we would work restaurants and teach skiing. And he was ski patrolling and I got into teaching skiing. So I worked at Bear Valley Nordic, it was called back then and, and, um, learned how to teach skiing. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, Met you know again. Met some, of course, great people doing it, and I kind of learned how to ski by doing it. So, well,
0: is that when you became PSA certified? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were so, the first. My understanding is you were the first uh, female PSA certified instructor.
1: No, no, not at all.
0: No. I read no, no. that. Somewhere.
1: I I was. I might have been the first PSA woman on the national demonstration team. That must
0: be what it is. Yeah, on yeah. the National demonstration team.
1: Right. So I got I got my certification and. I I was really into it. And so I became the chief examiner for our region and, you know, loved the technique stuff. And like I said, I was learning through this. I was understanding skiing at long last. And I even went and I got an Alpine certification too, because I thought that was so interesting. So I did, I, I kind of found something I was really interested in and it brought me back into skiing. Were Paul and Diane Peterson there when you were there? Paul was there. Diane hadn't entered the picture by then, but yes, I worked for Paul. Of course. Yeah. Paul's great. So, yeah. and so what happened was there were a bunch of us who worked there and we, we would train and I thought, wow, this is fun again. You know, I did a group of guys and we would go out and, you know, get up early in the morning and go ski before teaching lessons. And then the weekends I we'd pack up and we'd go to the far West races, which were a big deal back then. They were, a lot of people raced in Far West. And so all the different resorts would put on weekly races. And so we'd go and I got back into it and, and started really skiing again and, and enjoying it, like really liking it.
0: So it seems to me, this is when you, one thing I like to ask people in an interview is when did you figure out that you were talented? Like, when did you say, "Wow, I can do this either on the world stage, you know, on a world cup level or, or just as an athlete in general. And it seems to me at this time, you started to figure out that you were talented, even more talented than maybe you had suspected. Is that correct? Uh,
1: no, I didn't really think that at all until probably 86 when I went to nationals. I mean, I was, yes, I could win the far West races.
0: Debbie Walder's well, I, a pretty good skier back then.
1: Yeah. And you know, I mean, there were some pretty good skiers out and about, and but I never really thought I was that. You know what I mean? I yeah. It didn't really occur to me. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of like really good in this little community, but it didn't didn't really think about it. And then um, so taking, so that was like 1980 to 1986. So there were six years of of development. So think about it. I was teaching skiing. I was skiing a lot you know downhill cross country telemark i was on the psia demonstration team so i was you know really having to sharpen up and skiing like i said i was skiing all the time and, and in the summers i was working or you know backpacking in the mountains or doing long climbs or you know i was really getting strong i had it just kind of happened organically So in 1986, the nationals were at Royal Gorge and and you were there, right? I was there, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was fun, you know. It was like, you know, a big kind of the western scene. And I thought to myself, well, you know, far west says I should. It was back then anybody could. No, you not everybody could go. We had to kind of qualify through far west, as I remember. So I got a spot and I I had these car skis, um that were so i'd gotten a little bit of a, a deal you know okay here's a couple pairs of skis and you know i was stoked i had like two pairs of skis and so i was pretty excited and i thought you know if i go to nationals i might run into some people i know and i didn't think much past that except i, I got a question for you
0: you mentioned the Carhu skis jim fredericks worked for Carhu the year before he went to Rosignal. Huh. was that the connection with Carhu?
1: no it was uh, i'm trying to remember the guy he was in tahoe
0: oh okay because jim fredericks was doing for car what he was doing for rosignol starting a year later for decades uh, okay. and that's that so uh it's kind of through jim i switched from car to rosignol because it was john oh. Ruger who was with rosignol yep. yep yeah anyway i was just curious cool no back to, it was, back to royal gorge yeah
1: <laughs> so so i went and i thought well i'll run into some old friends here and i'm gonna just go i'm gonna get killed but At that point, I was just so happy in my, I was just happy at who, you know, with who I was and, and, and I was skiing again and I was no expectations. And so I think the first race was a 20 K skate. Oh yeah. They were skating. So that year it was only skating and I taught myself to skate basically. And that winter, I remember in 85, that fall, they had a race at West Yellowstone and I was like, wow, skating. And I went in it. And I was like, ooh, I'm really bad. You know, I finished in the 30s or 40s or whatever. And it's like, okay, I got to go home, learn how to skate. And then it was all skating that next spring in Royal Gorge. And I kind of had it figured out. And I got a seventh place in the 20K. And I thought, "Mm, that's pretty good. You know, maybe, you know, I kind of thought it was a mistake. You know, I thought there was a mistake on the results. and, And that's when I met Torbjorn. So, Torbjorn Carlson was the women's coach then. and Women's national walk- team
0: coach. Yeah.
1: Yep. He walked up to me after the race and he said, Oh, hello. My name is Torbjorn Carlson. And I noticed you today on the course. And so he explained who he was and he asked to look at my skis. And I was kind of embarrassed because I had prepped them myself. <laughs> and he said, Oh, you know, he kind of looked at him, I could see the dismay. And he said, I'd like to take your skis home and wax them for the the 5k. I said, Oh, okay. You know, I was kind of worried that I might not see them again, you know, like me forget them or something, but there he was, and there were my skis. And so I skied into a third place in that race and he took them again. And I, I won the 10k and I, I thought, wow, you know, that's just crazy you know I just it was hard to believe really I was 30 and here were these kids (laughs) so and yeah and it was at the point where I honestly didn't really know anybody else who was skiing I I knew Leslie Bancroft Critchco she was kind of making a comeback too she's like three years younger than I am but so we felt kind of old and a little out of place but Torbjorn said um I think you have some ability. And I, I thought, wow, that's crazy, you know, I'm just here for fun. And he said, I think you should think about trying out for the um, world championships in, they were the next year in um, Oberstorf. And mm. I said, oh, really? I go, well, I don't have, an, you know, I don't have any resources. And he said, well, do you work? And I explained that I, you know, I had this job at Tioga Pass Resort and, you know, waiting tables and cleaning cabins. And, you know, I saved some money from that. And he said, if you can get yourself to camps, you know, I'm gonna coach you and I'm gonna send you training logs. So I'm training plans and you turn in your logs to me. And I was like, whoa, here we go. I don't really know how to do any of this because I never really learned still, you know, I was just going and bashing around in the mountains. So, you know, he was true to his word. You know, I went to a training camp, spring camp at Kirkwood. And I didn't, oh, I'm sorry. I okay. didn't really feel uh, very accepted by the, the gals and
0: guys. I think they just,
1: I'm really sorry about that. Oh, it's the landline.
0: No um, I, I think at the time, and, and for the most part, continuing for a member of the, of the US key team community to be married and, and to have the associated stability and not lack of interest perhaps in going out and all that kind of stuff it it made you weird. I was weird. Yeah, I was old. Yeah. I was over
1: 30, my god, over 30 and yeah, so I'm yeah. married. You know, we owned a little house and it you know, I didn't it was kind of hard that way, but you know, I I didn't go away and I think that was the important thing is that people went, "Oh god, she's a sticker. She's going to keep she's going to keep coming back." And so I went to West Yellowstone again on my dime, and Torbjorn included me in all of his training and, and was so great to me. And I, then off I went to Giants Ridge, and we competed for spots on the uh, 87 team. So uh, there I won the – this was a key year, as you remember, because Classic came back, right? Yep. 86, it was anything goes, so everybody skated. 87, they divided the World Cup.
0: Yeah. The anything goes thing was half the field was still using kick wax. and depending on what level of competition you're talking about. Yeah. And then there were some brave souls who were, it, it, this is an 85, 86 skating. And sometimes it blew up in your face and sometimes it didn't, you know, it was a, it was a funny time, but then, yeah, then we switched to classic races and skate races. Yeah.
1: Right. And so I thought, well, my goodness, I know how to do that. You know, that to me, that was a bonus, right? So the first race that Giants Ridge was 10K classic. And I was like, okay, I could do this. So yeah, I won that race and placed well enough in the others. And off I was going to Oberstorf, having only done the pre-Olympics at at um Lake Placid in 79. And I also raced in the Gichigamis, boy, was that 78 or when they had the World Cup. Mm-hmm. I raced there, I got an 18th there. I still, someone sent me the results recently and I just went, oh my gosh, that is funny. But um, yeah, so I had only two international starts and really Kichigami was, there were hardly any foreigners there. There was a few Canadians and a couple Swedes, I think. It wasn't really a very international, anyway. So it was really my first, I hadn't done any World Cups, right? There I was uh, in this huge arena and it was pretty pretty
0: overwhelming. I didn't know the ropes at all. So before talking about World Cups, one thing I think is extremely important to notice, and that is being able to work with Torbjorn clearly had a profound effect on you. It took you from citizen racer know-how to cutting edge, formalized training with, with someone who could tell you when to do more or do less, and how to ski, how to train, how to recover, et cetera. Um, at that time in the United States and for many years still, there was, you, there was the Kichigumi ski team. That, that was a kind of a, a club that had with Nikolai Anakin. There was some coaching going on there and some re- regional U.S. ski team coaching going on. But outside of that, your elite athletes were pretty much just going home and training and doing the best they could. Someone might give them a training log. You were on your own, you know, um, nothing in common with, with today's world. And for you to have Torbjorn as a resource, for him to have grabbed you and then pulled you up like that was such a tremendous uh, stroke of fortune for you. It, it was,
1: you know, and I just feel to this day, I'm just ever so grateful for everything I learned from him. And I took none of it for granted, none of it. And we had, you know, we had a, like a Western regional training group. And so we'd have camps and and that, I just learned so much. I. Like I said, I didn't know how to do any of these things and I hadn't roller skied really ever, you know, a little bit after college, but with no instruction and, you know, it was, it was kind of amazing. And, you know, here I had this big, huge background, you know, in volume, just from massive amount of time spent running and hiking in the mountains. And that definitely was the only way I was going to make it you know then it was just all of a sudden I'm doing specialized training and that you know took there was adaptation but at least I had the training in my background at that point in time and you know <coughs> Torbjorn even said and I'll never forget this he'll say he would say well you missed your key training years your 20s to train specifically for the sport he said you're never going to get that back he said but you know given that you've done all this high volume doing other things, you could still learn it. And I, that gave me hope. I mean, he kind of said, yeah, you know, you're not doing it the right way. You didn't do it the right way. But um, we clicked and I, you know, we're still great friends to this day. And I'm, um, like I said, I learned so much and um, had some teammates at last. But yeah, we trained still at that. I trained in Crowley Lake by myself most of the time
0: in the summer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So at that time, I was on the um, on the eastern. So I was U.S. ski team also, but on a different level. And on the and I was invited to all the eastern training group camps, but I didn't go to most of them because I was a dumbass and I was really young, and I was I just started going to I was in high school and in college, so it wasn't um, very practical for me to try to do that all. But we one of the camps we had was up in uh, Newfoundland in uh, Lab City, and that was before there was a Noram, and then eventually World Cup started there. Did you ever make it up to those races?
1: No, I missed that whole phase. I, I people still talk about that, how Lab City and how cold it was and just, you know, how kind of out there it felt, but I never went to Lab City.
0: Hmm.
1: It must have been somehow when I was had ducked out or something from tra- from skiing for because yeah, those- that was
0: that was november eighty six, november eighty seven. Anyway, those two years anyway. And I can't remember after that because then I started going to West Yellowstone.
1: That's, I went to West Yellowstone.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. So um, from this point forward, you were a consistent top performer. You won 14 US national championship titles. You participated in both the 88 and 92 Olympics. You you competed in all the world championships that were available and you did very well. Um, You mentioned in something I read that in 1988 in Calgary, you felt for the first time, like you were an international ski racer in your own mind. Like you felt like you'd become more or less an international elite ski racer. Can you tell us about the transition and your experience there were, that brought you those thoughts, that realization?
1: I, I will say that, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that, no, that was more, it was more like 89 hmm. when that happened, 88, You know, going to your Olympics after only having really ski for two years, ski race for two years. I, you know, I was pretty overwhelmed, and I'd had giardia in the fall, Mm -hmm. like at West Yellowstone, and I went. I, you know, I didn't realize how much that really knocked me back, but I still qualified for Calgary when I went, and I skied okay, and it was super stressful. I remember being very stressed out, and not feeling great about it and I but I decided then that I it was really on me to change that and that I now that I saw what it was you know of course it was a lot of Russians and Finns going very 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 fast um but now that I saw that it was I said you know you don't have that much time you got to get your head around this so I that's when I yes that was a turning point when I said if you want to be an international skier it's things are going to really have to change and you're going to have to believe in yourself so I left that kind of feeling kind of wounded and and although I don't think I did that badly you know I finished in the 40s and you know it was I did okay and and then I went in 89 I went to Lochte for the world championships and I astoundingly had you know I think I had three top 20s there so I was you know, very pleased, and and I felt like I had taken things into my own hands, and you know, watched a lot of videos, and I just said, "You got to You got to um, do this. No one can do this for you." So I I felt that's when I went. Yeah, I can compete with these girls. And I had a funny experience there that I was just when I was thinking about this interview, I I was thinking back to being there, and I don't know if people realize, but. At that point in time, the World Cup points were only assigned to the top 15 places. So it was really hard to, to win those points. And we hadn't won any points in years and years. So when I got my 15th there, um, you know, it was a big deal. I got one point. And <laughs> but I had a funny experience there because one of my competitors from Austria, a gal named Maria Thurl, she... Um, approached me after the race and we had been, you know, in the year before kind of in the round, the same place in the world cups. And she walked right up to me and she said, wow, you, you're doing really well. What are you doing? And I said, what am I doing? <laughs> and I said, "Ah, oh, I just had a really good summer of training and my coach, you know, and I are really figuring it out and, you know, duh, you know, kind of not really thinking about it. But I, you know, that was kind of a moment for me. I, I thought, what did she mean? You know, and I went back and I talked to my roommate, Leslie, you know, I'm like, God, that was really weird. You know, what am I doing? You know, cause she was still skiing wherever she was skiing and, you know, the forties or whatever. And I was in the top 20 and she wanted to know what I was doing. And I, I didn't figure it out until 1990. 90 when was it 95 Ramsau world championships when she won a bronze
0: medal the same girl yeah she was a long time skier who got incredibly fast all of a sudden towards the end of her career
1: yep so that's when i thought to myself i know what she was asking me and no we never we never took any drugs at at all we never did (laughs) but yeah that was a really exciting time for me
0: yeah, you were 15th in the 15k classic and 19th in the 30k. Mm-hmm. Incredible results, uh, especially Let me say it's not only what you did in Lati, but you were also quite consistent, not only in Lati, but the whole number of years were quite consistent in your performances, but um, one thing that people don't realize is how rampant doping was at the time. And I don't I don't want to take a total left turn to from your timeline, but just to, just to qualify it, like Chobier your coach at the time estimated that 70 to 80% of the field was doped. And um, I competed at the time too. And I've got a, my own perspective. And I think it was more like 80 to 90% of the field that doped. Um, it was the exception. And and I can also say I was in a vehicle after a world cup in the spring of 1992 with a French team. And this was a biathlon world cup. I just made this transition from cross country to biathlon and i was with a french team and there were some people in the back of the van the french team head coach was driving some people in the back of the van some americans kind of talking about whether they thought that people were doping and and it was a ridiculous conversation especially because the french men got first and second that day and there was a french woman that won and at one point the, the french coach the head coach named patrice he pulled the van over looked at us in the mirror and said, you guys are idiots. And, and um, there were a few Americans in the back talking about it, but I was one of them. And you guys are idiots. And we were kind of like, Whoa, what's going on? And what do you mean? And he said, more or less, what kind of idiot would show up at world cup races, not doping. It's about as professional as not training or eating junk food. You know, I mean, his attitude was, Doping was part of being professional, and don't show up if you don't want to be professional. And, and it wasn't a moral question whatsoever. And he he basically said, "You guys are such naive idiots," and and he rejected the idea that it was a moral issue. It was a professionalism issue, and that was it. And it was quite eye opening. Yeah, that experiences like that. It was an amazing conversation. There was no shame whatsoever.
1: I yeah yeah. So I don't think there was any shame, and I you know, it, it wasn't really till Marty Hall started calling people out at, at Calgary, you know, those races <laughs> when the Russians were crushing and, you yeah. know, the Finns were, were there. And this was maybe when the Italians were starting to really show up. And yeah, and Marty called them out and people were shocked. People were just like, oh, Marty, that's, oh, that's blasphemy, you know, to say these things about these skiers. And I remember people were kind of like trying to shut them up and and it was kind of outrageous but i will say the sort of my first before this whole maria thurl story um when we were at oberstorf in 1987 we were staying in the same hotel as the uh, nordic uh, combined team and so there was which, the us yes Okay. The US, all of us were staying there. Jumpers, Nordic, Nordic, because all of it was happening at the same time at at Oberstdorf. So I, um, we were there when Kerry Lynch won his gold, his silver medal. And we were all instructed to, you know, get down to the race. He had had an amazing jump, go down to the race because he could win a medal. So we all trotted down there to the stadium and cheered for him and we we watched him and I mean I remember watching him pass like a lot of guys and I was like oh wow he's doing amazing you know this is incredible and you know then we all went down to the to the medals plaza and we did the whole you know support your teammate and and be we were there for him and and it you know there was a lot going on in that hotel that looking back I didn't notice it you know, I did, there was doctors and and stuff, right? And I, you know, none of us, we were clueless. We were totally clueless. And then when it was exposed later that he had actually confessed, been kind of, I don't know whether he was coerced to confess or whether his kind of his uh, support group and entourage just said, hey, you know, we got to give it up. So um, it was, yeah, he, it, he admittedly doped. And we and we were sucker punched. We were sucker punched as his teammates. And, you know, looking back, I'm like, oh, yeah, that doctor was there, a couple doctors and they were all acting. Everybody was acting really strange, you
0: know, and it was weird. But uh, of course, I remember that as well. And looking back at that, that was pretty much the same as what we were seeing from all the other national teams, except for ours. You know, we have, have like this one volunteer doctor that would come out, you know, really nice. And all they would do would be you know, sometimes they give you feeds in the course and help out. But for the most part, in terms of their doctorly, you know, doctor duties, they'd pretty much hand out antibiotics now and then. Or they tell you what cold medicine you could take and what you couldn't. Yeah, exactly. Whereas mm-hmm. other teams, they'd have a staff of doctors and it was much like what you were describing, you know, a lot more secrecy. And there were also, do you remember the term vitamin cocktail? Yeah and what the heck is a vitamin cocktail right
1: (laughs) you know what i remember too was riding on the world cup bus okay so all the you know the the wealthier nations had vans and planes and things like that but the rest of us rode in the bus and you know these were long drives through the mountains and um, the russians were always on the bus so we would finish a race and you know you pack up and hop on the bus and there they had quite the staff So, you know, the guys with the gold teeth would be on the bus and they were, um, they would hand out to the girls these uh, slices of, you know, like um, sausage or, you know, like a hard sausage, a salami or something. And I was like, that's a weird snack. But what the heck did they put like some kind of pills in there or? You know, it was weird. They just hand out, they came by and they would give like these little discs of, you know, salami to these girls. And I'm like, what, you know, we were like eating power bars and stuff. Right. So who knows? I don't know. I always thought that was kind of weird And that, and they kept very close tabs on them too. You know, they, you know, they were always, those guys were always looking at us if we looked at them. Yeah. So then you didn't look at them. Right. And yeah, I mean, you know, there were girls who in, on my team who said that they thought, you know, they thought so they somebody was shaving in the restroom, or, you know, all you know, because it was steroids too, and um, just stuff. They were big, a lot of them were big and didn't look quite right, and it was, you know, it was really I wanted to like these people. That was the hard part, you know, I. You would kind of strike up conversations if they spoke English and you wanted to like, you know, the Italians, because they seemed like such a fun loving nation, but they were dope to the hilt, right, you know, that whole time.
0: That's something I wasn't sure we were gonna be able to converse about this because I didn't know you had the same passion for like that I had the same experience. I I had friends from all over the world, you know, on these on these World Cup teams, and we made some really real true connections. And I was sure that pretty much every single one of these new friends was doping and pretty much making an ass out of me. You know, I mean, I was doing a different competition than they were, completely different competition. And sometimes I would feel like I wasn't worthy of being there because I was in a different competition with different rules, different preparation. But um, it was an interesting experience to be in because I really didn't think and ever have felt that it was a moral issue for them. There were some great people really interesting super people and and some of them are friends for life um but by no means were any of them uh clean and i don't
1: think but i don't think they like you said i don't think the ones who were doing it i'm not sure that everybody was you know i just i'm not sure but the ones that i am sure about you know i am pretty sure but you know, they didn't think they were doing anything wrong, I think. I think they, you know, like you said, it was just what they were told, if you want to do this, and you want to be a professional, and you want to, you know, win medals, then this is the, this is what you do. But, you know, I had an Estonian friend who moved to the US. um, And he, he said that, you know, of course, after the Soviet Union fell, you know, all those little countries were on their own. But, and then he ha- he struggled, but he said when he was a junior, he said, yeah, they gave him, yeah. they gave him drugs. And he was like a top, he was their top junior skier. And then he went on to ski world cup and he couldn't, he said, I was so upset because I didn't have it anymore. I didn't have the drugs. He said, and they just gave it to us. Said, you know, vita- like vitamins, you know, you take these and yeah. you know, he didn't, he never could, he said, I couldn't ski in the top 30. And, and it was really upsetting for him to be a junior champion and like a world, maybe a world junior champion. And then, you know, we had nothing, you know, the Soviet union broke apart and, and Estonia didn't have many money and he quit, you know?
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I always thought was weird was the vitamin cocktail thing. You know, I'd be hanging out with a bunch of European athletes talking, you know, shooting the breeze, laughing and a doctor would show up. Everyone kind of shut up and look at him and then say, he'd be like, Hey, it's time to get your vitamin cocktails. And I'm kind of like, what? What is a vitamin cocktail? You mean like multivitamins? You know, kind of a thing. And but they had these big syringe injections, um, multicolored. You know, they're orange and whatnot. And they would just this huge horse shot and had all sorts of stuff in it. And obviously there was doping stuff in there. I mean, big time. And I, um, it was just an odd thing. It was so open, but they just called them vitamin cocktails. I mean, who takes vitamin cocktails now? Nobody talks about vitamin cocktails. Known as syringes and. You know, at least of the of the clean nations. You know, it's not like the no. Norwegians are running around taking vitamin cocktails now. You know,
1: no. And we, you know, the thing was, we never saw it. My my team didn't see it, and so we were never we never talked about it because we thought, I think everyone individually thought, well, you don't want to talk smack about someone if you don't really know. Yeah, yeah. But we just hated to be beaten like that too. But it was, we didn't ever really know and. You know, and then you would see these people who weren't that greatest gears on the podium, and you just go, "Wow, they don't." I mean, yes, they're they seem really fast, but yeah, we we weren't we were trained not to talk about it too. You know, we just it, it, with the, also
0: horribly unhealthy. I think yeah. you know, um, talking about it is incredibly strong negative reinforcement. It's, it doesn't bring anything. It it kind of um, it's a solution. There's no there's no solution to it. Talking about it just makes the problem worse. You know. It didn't it didn't help. That, either shut saying. up and carry on or go home. That's yeah, kind of I way I, I, get, anyway. I
1: remember being extremely angry though when that Austrian gal won that bronze medal after not doing anything forever. You know, and the Austrians were suspect at that point. But they got, they got away with it. And there was a male skier, too, who also medaled. And I was like, how's Austria all of a sudden winning medals in you know, and- it, it
0: wasn't just a, a male skier that medaled. That was Marcus Gondler and uh, Oliver Stadlober. But they also were doing really well in the relays. Yeah. And they, I think they medaled in the relay. I mean, they're, they had four men with uh, off also, Gondler, Stadlober, and um, I guess Christian Hoffman was probably a, a young buck on the team who just came on. And they were, they were a world-leading relay team. As well oh, yeah
1: and I, it, how does that happen And i was very angry when she got that medal and then this is really bad but the us we had a national coaching symposium oh, i was like right when i first started coaching so i was going to all those symposiums and so it must have been 96 maybe 97 anyway she was retired maria was and gosh darn they invited her to be the guest speaker of course they did. <laughs> and I sat there in that room while she was speaking and I couldn't even look at her. And I just thought to myself, I bet you can't look at me either. You know, I just, it was really hard to take them. Like, wow, the US hasn't, they, they don't, you know, here they invited a, you know, a medalist from world championships to come and speak. And, and it was somebody that I knew wasn't legit. So that was very hurtful. But that's yeah, about I mean, as angry
0: as I got. <laughs> absolutely. So let me let me let's switch switch topics and um, move on in your timeline and in your career a little bit. Um, I guess this is a let, let's say for the rest of your career that we've, we've talked about it, you know, 1992, you competed in Auberville. Um, we were in the village there together, but I don't remember ever talking to you you were in 1998, you did world championships, et cetera. Are there any races you'd like to highlight or other experiences you'd like to highlight from that period?
1: Okay, yeah, so I did, yeah, I did world, I did 88 and 92 Olympics. I did worlds in 87, 89, 91, and 93. And I found that I skied better at world championships than I ever did in Olympics, even though it's really the same format, you know, four skiers from each nation and same, list of races you know i raced every race at both olympics and all my world championships you know i was i qualified for that well of course that caused some strife amongst the team but they you know i earned it and i was capable so i kept going to the start you know i wasn't going to take any starts off personally of and and so that caused problems there was um our team didn't always get along i mean if you read our book <laughs> trail to gold you'll you'll realize that it wasn't always you know glitter and striped relay socks it, there was a lot of competition within the team yeah. to make a relay team at a championships or to you know get a start right and so when i kept qualifying for all these starts you know people were like well shouldn't you sit one out so i should go and i'm like why You know, I, to me, I'm like, I'm now I'm 33. I'm not giving up anything. You know, I don't, I don't know if I can keep going. I'm it's here today and I'm strong and I want to go do it. So, you know, I don't know whether people thought I was selfish or what, but, you know, I would go to these things and race five times and, and it was okay. You know, I was more chances for me to, to try and do well. And, you know, 92, I, I, all my results were in the top 30 didn't didn't get into the top 20 but i was skiing really well but
0: those are phenomenal results yeah this is the record i mean i'm not talking about anything resembling uh, even a little bit of a clean field it's nothing like today and i know there's a lot of stuff going on today but this was nothing like today right
1: so yeah so we so we had a relay team figured out that we'd all knew about ahead of time and um There was some strife in the team and I was, um, my family was staying down in Honesty and I wanted to go down and spend a night down there with them and go to dinner. So my dad had flown out all my brothers and, you know, wives. And so we were down and we had dinner and I was told before I left to come back for the team meeting the next I think I missed one practice, but then I had to be back for a team meeting. I might've missed a team meeting too, but I was told that, you know, it was all good. And I got back and I was told I was kicked off the relay team and I was very angry, very angry. So I, uh, they were going to substitute another skier and I just, you know what? I put my foot down. I said, I've earned it. I've proven in every race so far that I'm skiing better than, you know, anybody else on our team. And I was a starter. I was, you know, I was that person.
0: And for the record, you had a history of doing very well in scramble legs and relays, right? Because it was class. You, you were really good at it.
1: Yeah. So that was, you know, I was kind of like, wow, okay, well, you, really, you're gonna put someone in there that didn't earn it, and because I didn't show up for a team meeting and they, that you knew ahead of time about. But anyway, I got my spot back, and I went out there, and I was, I might I have been a little angry. little annoyed but that's not that's no way to like go ski racing right but it works in relays and so you know i kind of started in the back of the field and then i was in the middle of the field and i don't know you know in 80 in 92 they had those um the olympic rings down at the bottom of the stadium down there and you would come off these steep downhills and you'd have to come down and you'd do this big u-turn around one of the rings and then you'd climb up the steep hill and you'd come down and go around. So it was kind of like, that's the way they showed, you know, the spectators, you know, what we could do. Anyway, I remember doing those, you know, up and downs and I was just passing people. And I remember passing, uh, Mari Lisa and I was like, I remember looking over and going, oh, sorry, you know, gotta go. But, you know, thinking to myself, I've never thought I could ever pass someone like that. And I came into the tag and I was quite there, you know, I was there, I was in fifth and fourth. Had I had just a little more time, I would have made fourth and third was 10 seconds in front of me. And I was like, we've got this. And I tagged off and the next classic leg went and I went out, you know, I went back and I was so excited. I was, you know, my frustration had turned into something that was just, you know what it feels like, you know, I was like, Oh, we're going to do so well. And we came in last, you know, right there in the second leg, we came to last and it was really hard. No one was there to talk us through it or to try. And you know, it was kind of like everybody was ashamed within us. We were ashamed. But we didn't really, the coaching staff didn't know how to handle things like that. And there were no feelings talked about. But we needed to talk about that. There needed to be some kind of, gosh, Nancy, you know, that was awesome to see you do that. And man, we really, you know, we, we couldn't keep it together. But are, you know, are we still okay? You know, I, there was just, it was really a moment where I went, God, this is really dysfunctional. Yeah. And I I became super frustrated with the politics of ski racing within the u.s and coaching you know coaches were there to service you to do your skis and stuff but there wasn't like anybody who understood what training or you know Torbjorn wasn't my coach anymore because that whole thing blew up but he was my club my club coach and I paid him on the side to be my coach but we had to pretend we were you know in that case I had to pretend I was being coached by someone else and
0: for political Jesus. reasons. Huh? For political reasons.
1: For political reasons. And that was really hard. That was very hard to be dedicated to one system of training and then to have to fake it when you were at camps or, and there were, the respect wasn't there. You know, I didn't feel I had the respect of the national team coach, whereas I did have the respect from my, from Torbjorn and, his, and the club program. But it um, was a really hard time for me, 92. And I had qualified to move ahead to uh, the spring World Cups off of my results, and then I was told, "Oh no, everybody's going home." And I said, "Oh no, you know I'm going to pull the book out and show you, you know the 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 rule. Here's the rule. Here's what it is. If you that you know." And they're like, "No, the team, we don't have any money. There's no money. Everybody's going home." Well, that was terrible. So I went home, and I was there wasn't there weren't even There may have been some spring series. And I was like, I don't want to do that. I qualified. I'm in shape, you know. I I felt, I was 34. I was still, you know, really strong. And like, okay, I want to go back. So I I remember writing a letter to Howard Peterson and really complaining, complaining. I said, I'm supposed to be back there. I missed the whole spring World Cup. I complained so hard that they sent me to Polar Cup. And um, I went back. With Gordon Lang as a coach, and got to race because I, what I needed was more time, more you know, more time in World Cups and and racing against those kind of people, and it, it was crazy, you know. Here I was just on the up and up, and they're like, "No, we're all going home."
0: So Polar like, Cup for for the listeners, most people don't know what Polar Cup is. Mm-hmm. It's a it's basically a spring. It's got most of the World Cup competitors in it, and it's super low key, um, but. So it's super competitive races in Scandinavia um, after the World Cup season's over with stellar World Cup fields with one thing that uh, kind of made it fun for me was the award ceremonies to get weird stuff like fire extinguishers and lamps and I don't know, (laughs) tables or something like, you know, what am I going to do with this? You know, Um, good money, though. Great competition, super run events and just a great opportunity to gain experience banging heads with the best people in the world yeah in a really low-key
1: um setting and there were always like big dinners after and you would hang out with people and you know it was a way it was really how we you know for me it gave that going back and just being there and having these races it was
0: like yeah this is what they should be doing we need to be doing this stuff I, i did two polar cup uh seasons after in the spring and they were two of the best experiences I've ever had because, yeah. um, you know, the races are what every like two or every three days for 10 days, something like that. And you're traveling and racing and traveling and racing and and you can try something or you get lucky and you and you either start right in front of a hot shot. And you're like, OK, I'm going to I'm going to I'm just going to go as hard as I can and stay with the person and black out, you know, kind of a thing like you could try whatever you wanted, you know, because you're going to race again the next day. Or you come through a lap and someone, some all-star like Ova only, that happened to me once, he came through in a lap and I got to jump in behind him and then stay with him as long as I could. And it was just incredible racing opportunities.
1: Yeah. And it it was a way to, you know, what those the today's teams have so much familiarity with with how things go and how to hang out with those people and how to just how to be in Europe. And we just didn't I never had that, you know, and the polar cup really gave you a lot of opportunity and so I was really glad I fought for that yeah that was really
0: important for me it's interesting in 1992 you're saying this is spring of 92 Yep. spring 92 I was in the biathlon team I'd switched and uh I was supposed to do the post-olympic world cups uh I went up to Oslo did that one did I think the one after that in Finland and then I was supposed to do the world cup in Russia and they said no uh, uh, coaches aren't going so you can't go and I was like well I have to stay here anyway because I was doing the military world championships and then the biathlon polar cup series series so what do I do they're like I don't know you can't go to Novosibirsk and do the biathlon world cup so I stayed in Rovaniemi, Finland for three weeks <laughs> I mean what, what a bunch of crap that's harsh <laughs> uh, I would have been glad to do you know whatever it is for myself instead of yeah. instead of, I, I had to sit there it was just total bullcrap you know
1: yeah, that was kind of just how things, how things rolled back then. And, you know, the funding was not consistent. You know, what you could do one year, you couldn't do the next. And then, you know, I do want to talk a minute about how clubs, you know, kind of started and then got snuffed out. And so there were no clubs. Like you said, there was like, you know, kind of the only thing that resembled clubs were the marathon teams and... Also, uh, there was that club out in um, Colorado. I forget it. One of those really high altitude resorts. Well, I don't remember the. It was. Um,
0: it's Snow Mountain Ranch, and it was. Yeah, uh, no Mountain Ranch had a little Jim... bit of. Jim. Uh, oh, yes. Come on. I know. I know who we're talking. Yeah, Fantastic coach. He was one of the national team coaches yeah. for a while. Super yeah. guy. Um. Oh man, I'm I'm going to be embarrassed because I run into him now and then. Anyway, uh, he also worked with Dick. Dick Taylor was like New England. And then Jim. Yeah, I know. On Ranch was was running that team. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that was. Yeah, but the, the clubs are basically zero. You know, a couple of like two, you know. Yeah. So so
1: we had. So Torbjorn. OK, so he fell out with the national team. I don't remember what year that was. Uh, but, you know, that was a huge disappointment for some of us, you know, who were really thriving under his um, coaching. So, you know, we, he started a club and it was called Team Bonnie Bell. And we had these kind of ridiculous purple and pink and green or something uniforms. And we had a, uh, we had a band and we were, it was a bunch of national team skiers, men and women. And it included many developing skiers which was a great opportunity for them. And it was kind of exactly what clubs are today. But um, the national team didn't take well to it because they wanted us to be racing in USC team attire. And so we never knew what we were supposed to wear. You know, we're like, what kind of race is this? What can we wear? You know, and Team Bonnie Bell, you know, was supported us and they understood that some of us were having a dilemma. And, you know, and then it was the division of coaching, like I said. and And, you know, you can't just, you have to have a plan you can't have two identities and two it was really hard you know they didn't go together there was not an appreciation from the national team about this successful club which is now when I look back on it I'm like this is the model that's being used today and so that ended and but we had a great time and and it was a way for so many skiers to come up through the ranks and be able to train with us, you know, people who were on the outskirts. Like when I, I talked about being on the outskirts, when, you, you know, you were ranked like 12th in the country, but you weren't on a national team. Right. And it was a way for them to be, to, to train with us and to hang out with us and to learn stuff. And anyway. I
0: have to, I have to set the record straight. So the guy's name is Jim Young.
1: Yes, Jim Young. Yes.
0: Yeah. He was at Snowman Ranch and he coached quite a lot of high, high level skiers and contributed yep. a lot to, to us skiing at the time. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, that, what, what existed starting around that time for quite a while were these marathon teams and yep. they looked good. You know, you, you weren't head to toe Rosignol or Fisher or whatever. And then you have, you know, a couple different sponsors on there, Rosie do Toko Fisher, Swix, et cetera. And they looked good, but the reality was for the most part, there was zero coaching, zero anything, zero resources. They just go home and then train, in their backyard doing whatever they're doing with no direction. And then because they're decent athletes, they get this stuff. And then they do these races with the, with the fancy stuff on, but they weren't getting any support really in terms of how to become a better athlete. And and we finally switched to the club system later. And that's when things really took off after a few years after that. And um, there were some people, for example, like when I, when I graduated from college and left, what do you do? You you go home. I was no. talking to Pat Weaver, for example, he trying to get ready for the Olympics. He, he, same deal. He went home and he was roller skiing over Christmas, roller skiing, doing all his training. And I mean, that, that's how it was back then. And I think people now have no clue how far in the wilderness we were as a country. And in terms of our coaches, education, how many coaches we had, how many programs we had. The U.S. ski team at the time basically thought they should be the resource for everybody. And for that reason, they more or less discouraged clubs. And then there was this transition where we went to a club based system and everything changed. And then we really started to improve as a country.
1: It's absolutely correct. And there's a chapter in our trail to gold book about, about that, uh, that Betsy, Betsy Youngman wrote, because she was part of all the the factory team thing and then team Bonnie Bell and right, remember uh, Bonnie Bell. Right. And, and then national team also. And so she wrote a chapter about, about that because I think it's a really important thing for people to understand that, you know, had I right out of college had, had I had a systematic training program, what could I have done? Exactly. What could I have done? I took six or seven years off and did. Who knows what I did? I wasn't even really ski racing then. And I, it's a waste of. I, I'm, I, I do not regret the path I took because I got to do the whole ski teaching and, you know, mountaineering. And yeah, you know, I met Claude and I was able to come back to it on my own terms and and really be ready for it and psyched and realize that it's not a you know that there's a timeline here and I'm going to run out of time and I need to do it now and I think that that helped me but you know it's it's too bad you know there was not just me it was there were probably every year you know 10 people like me who just were kind of cast out into the wind and anyway it's not that way anymore and I think it's great and I and I it's 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 um it's so obvious you know it's it's the support and the level of coaching at these clubs is is fantastic and then everyone comes together and there's appreciation for stratton mountain from apu and you know like everybody there's respect and the coaches respect one another and they do different things but it's all for the cause of you know getting people onto the national team and into into championships and world cups and Olympics
0: when you were a junior aged person you didn't ski race um I guess I guess maybe when you were a sophomore in college you were a junior still but um possibly but but my point is later much later you became a junior coach and I think you've got a unique perspective quite a unique perspective because when you started ski racing there were only a handful of coaches in the entire country uh, full-time coaches uh, there weren't even a handful really and and when you became a junior coach later there were a ton of coaches and coaches education had, had been developed quite a lot and um, it's pretty amazing I think to consider your perspective from your timeline as an athlete and as a skier how much we've changed as a country I mean we've really become a Nordic ski community at least in, in certain pockets of the United States. Uh, it's it's it's
1: almost fantastic to think of what a short period of time how much happened and you know the put you know the club program supporting juniors and juniors having solid year-round training you know I wasn't ever a junior and I don't know what that was about and I know that it was probably haphazard when I was a junior and you know some came out of it and advanced but there were probably a lot of really good skiers who were lost in that system but yeah to see what the the fantastic you know structure that's in place it's it's phenomenal but i will say that since i started coaching um it's changed a lot too i mean i was i didn't know how to coach right i just knew that mammoth needed a team we had all the snow and they didn't have a nordic team they were of course very good in the alpine and snowboarding world with junior programs and that kind of thing, but not Nordic. And so I said, I'm making it my mission to do this. I want, I want to see Nordic skiing in this town. And boy, it wasn't that easy. I got to tell you, that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I mean, I had to basically walk into the high school and kind of, I had some posters and I'm like, Hey, I'm starting this team. Does any, you know, like you, why don't you come out? You know, well, we don't know how to ski, you know? And so there we were. And so I have a question.
0: When did Tamarack start the touring center
1: there? Okay. So Tamarack cross country, which is our, our Nordic area. um, I think it started in the mid seventies. Okay. And there were some Norwegian guys, including Auden Endestad who were there. And they lived in this funny little cabin that is now our ski wax room. And they didn't, I don't think they had any grooming equipment. They'd go out, you know, on snowshoes and, drag a little thing and the the stories are there um but yeah there so that was when it started and then i started working at tamarack right after i retired and it was privately owned by a family and they sold it to mammoth mountain in i think 1999 so i worked at it for the family and then for the for when mammoth owned it but yeah so coaching was i didn't know how to do it and i just you know i started with the school team and we'll go up to Tahoe and then it was lucky there that I started hanging out with some of the other coaches and Far West was floundering as a junior program and so a few of us so it was like Glenn Job and John Downing and Josh Schloss and I were very invested in you know all these people of course yep. um in in um getting the junior program going and we were astounded at you know the low level of of Skiing, you know, that was happening. And so we started putting on camps. And I found so much support within our little far west coaching group there. And we brought, you know, we started putting kids on the top of the podium at junior nationals after some time, but we did it. And we're just a tiny little division. But there was, that was very empowering for me to have that because, you know, here I am down in Mammoth, which isn't anywhere near Tahoe. People may not realize that, but we're three hours away and doing it by myself and there weren't that many women coaching either and now it's you know every time I turn on my computer women's ski coaches association has a picture of a woman coach being honored and I'm like wow I never got honored as a woman's coach by anybody you know we we were there some of us were there fighting for it but it's different now it's there's so much more opportunity and like I said I I had this far west family
0: and um that was really great. So I, I want to talk to that. I have a question and a comment about that. So I'm happy to, and grateful to see such great athletes, such as Laura McCabe, Ingrid Butts, Leslie Hall, Kami Thompson, and now Caitlin Gregg and Liz Steven, for example, coaching after their successful ski careers. I think that's something that, that has been missing, except for in your case. Um, they have so much to offer, and I, like so many others, respect and appreciate them. After you retired from ski racing, you started coaching at the Mammoth Junior team in 1983. There were very few female Nordic ski coaches. The only one I can really think of of a major, you know, a major program would be Martha Rockwell, who is the Dartmouth head women's coach. Um, I should say the amazing Martha Rockwell. <laughs> Did you feel that being a female ski coach, despite being so very highly qualified and experienced as an athlete, was an obstacle that prevented you from being listened to and respected? By skiers and fellow coaches alike oh that's a loaded question um yeah I felt like outside
1: of my far west support group you know we they totally understood what I was bringing to the table and respected that and we were equals we were equals as soon as you stepped out of that though I did not feel like an equal and I felt you know you go to a coach's meeting at um junior nationals or whatever and you know, you just could feel people. You you know, you raise your hand and ask a question. You just, I don't know. I, I felt somehow not not on an equal footing there with the males. And you know, you'd be standing in line to pick up your bibs or something, and someone would just walk in front of you. The guy would walk in front of you and just. I'm like, I'm standing here in line. I am a coach. You know, and, you know, things like that would happen, and I took great comfort in seeing Laura and Leslie at races and. You know, of course, I'm, I think what Cammie and, you know, has done and, and, you know, um, Becky Flynn, Becky Woods, and, you know, that those are Mm -hmm. people, you know, who made it. And I will say that I, I did have some opportunity in the early years after I retired, I would get a notice from the US ski team, you know, these trips are going to Europe, you know, you can apply, but I couldn't, I had like a baby at home. You know, I was like, I can't, yes, for my coaching career, I should be going to the world, world juniors or, you know, the world university games or whatever it was. I should be doing those things. I didn't have, I couldn't, I had a, you know, a little kid. I was like, I'm stuck at home. I'm coaching my club. That's all I could do. So I felt a little bit like I was stuck in a pigeonhole. I never really felt that it was not a valid coaching assignment I feel like that's maybe one of the more important places you can be in in coaching and reaching kids and turning them into lifelong skiers or outdoors people but I didn't get the professional step ladder that I needed at that time and I don't know I a little bit regret that I couldn't have been gone further in my coaching but oh well so Becky
0: you mentioned Becky Flynn and then later Becky Woods. Yep. Uh, kind of a cool story. Uh, her, her dad was the Bates coach, the head coach uh, when you were there, and she's the daughter.
1: Yeah, well, an even better story. Um, I walked into their office after having not been at Bates for many, many years um, with my daughter for in her junior year, and she was there to tour campus and have a, you know, a, um, a meeting with With Becky, and there was Coach Flynn and Becky in the office and in the same office. And that was pretty amazing to have Laurel be able to talk to them and then go to Bates and have Becky coach her. And I had a very kind of um, a pretty neat moment with Coach, we call him Coach uh, Bob Flynn. And he still had my, um, he had, I had an award. And he kept it over his desk. I mean, it must have been like 35 years. It was my All-American Award. Yeah. And he said, I have something I have to confess. He said, you never got your All-American Award. I said, what All-American Award? I didn't even know what it exists. You know, and he goes, this has been hanging over my desk for, you know, since you graduated. And I went, oh, and he gave it to me. And it was, now it hangs over my desk. That's pretty cool.
0: <laughs> so um, there's something I never told you. And um, I don't get to see you very often. And it's not like I ever knew that well. But I always looked up to you very much. And especially once I was on the Biathlon World Cup, fighting it out. I mean, I, I I had a cross country career as well, you know, fighting out there too. But on the Biathlon World Cup, fighting it out and trying to find your place and doing as well as you could do. I saw you doing really well. And I made it a point every weekend to check your results. I never told you that, but I always found it really inspiring and you know, I wasn't checking anyone else's results. I had some friends of course, all over the place in the cross country team and so on, but I always checked your results and it was always very inspiring to me how well you did. Do you remember on the TVs back then in Europe, they had this text function. So in the remote control, you can switch from TV to the text. And then it was like this archaic Atari type super old thing where you could look up some text and look up news. If I couldn't find a newspaper or whatever hotel was in, I'd hit the text thing and look up the cross-country ski World Cup results and check your results. And I would, every oh. week, I would check your results, just so you know. Oh, Ian, I didn't um,
1: know that. I know oh you didn't
0: know God. that. And I just wanted you to know, because <laughs> um, I've told you when I've seen you now and then um, that you've always been an inspiration to me. But I don't think that you really knew exactly to the point that I'm talking about. I always check your results.
1: Ian, and you tell was, everybody that, I'm sure.
0: No, I've never told anyone that because it wasn't true. And the real one, there were two reasons I checked your results. One is because it was so amazing how well you were doing and it was exciting, but it was also, I thought somewhere, you know, if you could scratch and claw your weight up to those results and an incredibly stacked field against you because of doping, maybe I could too. And, and it just gave me courage and um, maybe some belief because you were doing so well in this day and age, probably people would look at your results and say, what's the big deal? Exactly. But, but man, you did so well. And I don't think anyone has a clue how truly successful you were. Um, I think your results were comparable to being a regular top five in world cups. So that's just my, my two cents. And, you know, if someone wants to reject it, that's their problem, but that's how I, that's the reality of the situation. And, and um, you were so in are as a person, so inspiring to me, and I, I wanted to make sure you knew that for real because I've said it to you before, but I think you probably thought I was not being sincere. And and so I just want you to know that. That's oh, something I regularly I,
1: do. I appreciate that. I, I'm, I feel really good about that. I'm glad I could do that for you.
0: <laughs> so you inspired the heck out of me. That's one person anyway. <laughs> well, we all have to have somebody who inspires us, right? Yep, absolutely. Um, so let's let's um, change the subject and... Ian, I have to let my dog in, so I'm going to wander. Okay. Yeah, no worries. I'll, I'll figure out what we're going to talk about then. So what I wanted to mention is your World Cup career spanned from when you were 31 to 37 years old, which is Correct. unheard of. That's really weird. You know, That's really weird. Yeah. Um, and so when you arrived at the World Cup when you were 31, you were an inexperienced rookie on the World Cup despite being 31. Yeah. You were a, a consistent top performer. But I think most most skiers hitting the World Cup have the attitude, okay, I have the benefit of time. Yeah. I have the benefit of not needing to learn fast. I'll just, you know, every race I'll learn something and and so on. And and it it kind of gave them a a cavalier maybe uh, approach sometimes where you get plenty of time. So you just have fun and kind of figure it out. Whereas in your case, I don't think you've ever given yourself that kind of luxury of patience. Can you talk about how this affected your attitude and maybe even maybe you were more focused because of knowing that the, you had less time to figure things out?
1: Yeah. You know, not being a junior, I miss that sort of that fun social where you make a bunch of friends and skiing and, and that kind of sets a tone. And I, so I came into it. And like I said, readily, I wasn't accepted very well. And it was an outsider and I think everyone just hoped I'd disappear. And then I just kept, skiing well and what people may not realize now is that we all had to come home and race the national championships whether you know if we were in europe nope you came home you did that you went back to europe and that's how we made olympic teams and world championship teams unless you could pre-qualify but um it was important that we were there and anyway so everything really counted for me you know every every one of those national championships meant something and um I didn't have the luxury of time I mean I was old I was I was definitely old and I don't know I feel like you know I wasn't there for the social time or the you know to be with my friends that I grew up with skiing or you know it was like I was there and I was set down in this atmosphere and I had to like I said after 88 I said you got to figure this out you know it's it's now. And so I was very focused. I was one thing. I'm, I'm pretty humble, but I will say one thing I did really well was I could train by myself and I did a lot of my training here in Crowley Lake and where people had never seen anyone roller ski or, you know, do any of this stuff. And, you know, there were, were not people doing this. So I was okay with that. I take myself out and I, I had a bike. And I would, you know, take my bike up somewhere and stash it in the woods at the top of some climb and roll up, you know, I'd put water along the way and, you know, I'd drop off water bottles and I'd get up there and then I'd ride the bike, you know, down the hill and with my roller skis on my back. And, you know, I, I had, if Torbjorn gave me a plan, you know, I took it really, I took every single day really seriously because I just thought, you know, it has to be now every day is really important. And I was good at visualizing having like training companions or, wow, I'm at a training camp right now. And, you know, these I'm with world cup skiers and I'm, you know, doing this workout and they're just ahead of me. So I need to keep up or, you know, I could do that stuff do the mental part of it. And I, like I said, I didn't shirk the training ever. I, I trained really well and I trained hard. And I know I trained well over the number of hours that I reported because I didn't want Torbjörn to get mad. But um, oh. <laughs> so even so, of- I trained
0: eight, over 800 hours at time. Oh, that's a lot of hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have a question. Why did you stop competing when you did? Because you had the um, unique opportunity to do an Olympics two years later. That's between 92 and 94 is when it switched so that summer and winter Olympics were two years apart. And so that was a unique opportunity. And you were still skiing fast in 1993. I'm curious as to why you stopped instead of giving another shot at the Olympics. Uh, So regret, regret, regret. Oh, sorry.
1: I couldn't even... I never even turned on the TV and watched Lillehammer. So that's how... Okay, so I came back from that 92 92 no 93 season and I did not have a great I was overtrained because Torbjorn thinking you know big thinking toward 94 had given me a very large training plan and you know I didn't something happened I wasn't I didn't handle it and I did struggle all that winter and I went home in the after the world championships and i i said i'm i'm quitting so that was been following and i told called up Torbjorn, and i said i'm i'm done i'm finished and so he let that go but like every two weeks he would call me and go yeah well nancy i think you know you need to rethink your decision and let's talk about it and i think you know next year i'm going to reduce your hours and you know, you're going to really come back for 90, you know, the next games. And I just said, I, I, for some reason, I just stuck my heels in the sand and pushed back. You know, I was like, I was tired. I was just, I was tired physically. I was tired mentally because of the politics on the team and not feeling a lot of support from, mm, I got myself into trouble with the male, um, you know, the the patriarchy there that existed on the U.S. ski team and in in the, um, you know, the administration level too. And I was not popular in that group because I was very forthright and asked for things that I thought I deserved. And I wasn't very well liked and I was treated, I don't think I was treated fairly either. And I, even though I, I was tired of it. I was tired of the struggle of, you know, having to, fight my way to go back to europe and i had a friend here andrea Mead lawrence who was um she was an alpine racer and a double successful
0: gold, alpine racer
1: yeah a double gold medalist and she sure. lived in our community and i used to talk to her because she's she was the force of nature and she never backed down to anybody and she's she gave me a lot of you know courage to stand up for myself and to do some of those things and i and when i did them you know i was not not treated fairly, and so I got. To, you know, she just, you know, she just kept encouraging me to go back, get what you deserve. You know, anyway, I it was a struggle, and Torbjorn was always on my side, but I just gave up, and I was, I'm, in a way, I'm sorry. And I think had I rest, you know, rested more the next year and taken a lighter schedule, and I probably could have pulled it off. I have, but a, I have to live with that. That's a very
0: dangerous question, <laughs> so uh, I do to answer it. Through. But um, speaking generalities, have you ever noticed a – you're in a team. And, and as, as a te- member of a team, you want to be a good teammate. And, but what does that mean? Sometimes if you're honest and principled, you're actually being a horrible teammate, even though you think you're being a good teammate because you're rocking the boat. Whereas if you're dishonest and telling people what they want to hear – a lot of people would say that's being a good teammate, and you might think, "What? No, that's not being a good teammate. That's being a terrible teammate." Do you know what I'm talking about? I totally do. That—that's—I've—I've <laughs> ran into that a lot, and I was definitely too honest and forthright, and too pure in wanting to be a true teammate, as compared to telling people what they wanted to hear and and like, like smoothing things over and letting things kind of go the way they're going. You know what I mean? There's, I that's a I'm tough with one. you. I'm with you, and
1: I. Yeah, I feel like I wasn't all that well liked and um, I did have some solid teammates and we're still very good friends today and, you know, I could confide in them and, but, you know, you did have to play a game. There's a lot of gamesmanship to curry favor with the coach or to, you know, maybe slide your way into a start that you didn't quite earn, you know, a little bit of. Mm, unfortunately, there was a little bit of flirtatiousness that had to happen or, you know, kind of just brown nosing is a nicer way to say what I thought. I, I didn't
0: realize that you were as bad at this as I was. <laughs> oh, I was terrible. <laughs> I was horrible at it. Well, An example would be, for example, let's say you've got your training program from your coach, but you're on, on the World Cup and, and you're all doing some workouts and the World Cup coach says, I want you to do this today. What do you do? My answer would be to be honest and forthright and say, Well, you know what? I think this is what I want to do because this worked for me in the past. And this is, you know, we're three days before a race, and this is what my coach says to do. So I'm going to do this. And then, and then you're not a team player. You're this jerk and whatever. And what another person counseled me to do was to say, oh, Okay, no problem. I'll do that. And then do what you were going to do anyway without telling anybody. And then no one knows better and everyone's happy. And to me, that's not being a team player. But to someone else, being principled and honest is not being a team player because you're sticking out like a sore thumb and and that's something I struggled with and I, I evidently I, I took the honesty course which was a disaster as compared to just telling what they wanted to hear and then doing my own thing because I didn't know the difference anyway and that's it's I think that's something you struggle with probably too
1: yeah it is and you know people would play the game and I didn't play the game and I'm really one thing that's makes me very happy is that that doesn't exist anymore. And that people can, you know, like I say, they all come from their different clubs and they go to a training camp and maybe they're not doing the same thing every day but sometimes they are and it's okay. And everyone respects that. And I, you know, we sh- we needed to have that when I was when I was on the team and I think people would have gotten along better and the, there would have been more mutual respect and I, I think, read my book, it's all in there.
0: <laughs> I'm going to, so, um, I guess I want to – there's something called the Agony Hill Time Trial. Everyone out west knows what that is, especially in, you know, the Intermountain Corridor. Um, but the U.S. ski team – there's a hill in Salt Lake City that the U.S. ski team used for decades and continues to use to evaluate athletes' fitness and preparation. It's basically a sandy, super, super steep uphill with a couple of flats in it. And um, many years ago, I'm thinking – about 1992, somewhere around there, you set the women's record and that record still stands today. They've changed the course somewhat. Um, and one person did come close to your time. So it's debatable as to, you know, if the courses were com- comparable over time, but but the reality is you set an incredible time and that's, that's, uh, that's, that stood for over 30 years. Do you have any comment on that? I, I imagine you're not a fan of the Agony Hill Climb. Uh, all I'm going to say is 50 bucks,
1: 50 bucks. That's what Torbjorn told me that he would give me if I made it below a certain time. And I was a poor, I was very poor. We didn't have, I didn't have any money. I, I, Ian, it was really sad. You know, yeah. I'm like $50. I can do that hill faster than I ever have. Um, seriously though, I did win 50 bucks from Torbjorn when I got that time, Awesome. but I, it really played into my strengths because I was, um, I was a strong runner and I'd, I had all this, you know, hiking experience and that was my, I couldn't win a, I could not win a roller ski time trial on my team ever. I was a terrible roller ski. but that, now that really played into my strengths. So that's how that went. And you know, it's a horrible time. It's a, it's a time trial that you want to, oh, it's, you feel terrible at the top. <laughs> it's always
0: hot. <laughs> so tell me about Trail to Gold your involvement hmm. in creating the book and the satisfaction that you get from it and tell me why this project is so meaningful to you so okay so trail to gold the journey of
1: 53 women skiers just came out um a month ago or so and it, it was the uh, brainchild of matt whitcomb man uh, i couldn't come up, come up with an exact year but Probably five or six years ago, he had the women on the national team make a list of all the Olympians who went before them and, and say, you know, we need to get in touch with these people and hear their stories and maybe we'll do something with it. We'll make a book or we'll, we'll compile it into an audio book or, you know, something we need to record this. So I got a call from Rosie Brennan and she had some questions and she asked me and I was so excited to talk to like a a modern day you know skier and I was just oh I was like wow I feel really um kind of recognized you know wow my name came up on a list and here's a, here's this person and I was probably more way more excited than Rosie was and she probably doesn't even remember it but anyway so we we all did this and I think they recorded it and they made a kind of a an archive of it and then didn 't have the time or the bandwidth to do it you know they're busy and and so it got left and in the la- it around 2018 um, Allison Owen and Sue long Sue long weems um, decided to organize uh, all the women' skiers who had done who had been in the Olympics so they're 53 and they're all still living and they made a um, an organization called U.S. Uh, Nordic Oly- Olympic Women, Us Now. Mm-hmm. And they said, wow, we're, you know, we're gonna be a group and we're gonna do something. And so we, we actually met as a group at Quebec City at the, at the 2018, 2018, no, 2019 uh, World Cup Finals. I mean, you know, we all hung out and had a dinner and skied together, you know, it was fun, it was really fun there were people I had never met before who'd gone to the Olympics before me and after me. And so, you know, we came up with an award. We get every year, we give an award to one of the current women skiers for accomplishment. And, um, so that was great. And then a little bit later the next year or so, I don't know whether it was Allison or Sue, the book idea of a book came back up. And so we said, let's take, that information and let's run with it you know that needs to happen still so i'm
0: sorry to interrupt but do you have a light that you can i oh, yeah, it's getting with? really dark maybe if i move over here a oh, little too light never mind you need light in front of you so i can okay. so, that, so it focuses better that's that's good yeah yeah but i gotta get
1: hmm, away
0: from this window or you can face the window i can face the window
1: got it oh i can face the window that's light i would just get in a different chair super yeah
0: okay so so this project is obviously very personal to you it's it's uh, that's really good um it's very personal to you it's not like it's the story of your life but it's more than that it's a story of women's progression it's a story of a, a of the progression of women in society women in sport women in cross-country skiing um the transition from us being this crappy primitive ski nation to what we are now there's a whole bunch of different storylines. Tell tell me why this is so personal and important to you.
1: Yeah, so, you know, we kind of organized it and then we thought, you know, maybe we should just have people write, you know, open it up and just say, if you have stories to tell, please write them down and share them and turn them into this book committee. I wasn't even originally on the book committee, but I became very wrapped up in it because the stories were so interesting and we felt, that the skiers today you know the the gold medalists and and their teammates and the people who are having such great success that we look up to we thought they maybe should be aware of how it was before and that everybody should be made aware of wow you know this is phenomenal but how did it happen and and we felt like we were soldiers on the march always but we never got to the destination and a lot of people, and myself included, feel that we didn't, we felt like failures. We felt that we let our country down, that we never won medals, and people wanted us to win medals. And if you don't win a medal, you're not any good. And, you know, and you, when you don't have those things, you don't get sponsorships and headgear sponsors and accolades. And so we all feel like we just drifted off into the past. And there's so many, of those women who were so vital and still contributing to the ski community or, or to, to something else in life that's equally as important, you know? They're, they're still out there being Olympians. So I just jumped into it because I wanted I wanted people to know. And it's, and it's so very interesting, the stories that they tell and the people. So what I you, got involved.
0: What you just said about feeling like a failure and feel like you let your country down and feeling like, I mean, how many times did you come back and you are very, very successful. How many times did you come back from World Cups, Olympics, or World Championships? And then everyone said, what happened? Every time. And, and I'm thinking, you know, it happened to me a number of times. And I'm like, wait a minute. What I just did was kind of like winning a national championship every weekend, just so you know. You know, like you go to nationals and you get first or second or whatever. And everyone's like, oh, you did so well. And it's like, you don't understand. I just did that for the last three years, you know, every weekend. I was, you know, first or second American kind of a thing. What, how comes that, why is this so difficult to understand? It's those guys are skiing and girls are skiing really fast over there. They're all doped up, hopped up on this net. It's hard as heck, but it, somehow you end up feeling like a failure. You know, you get two minutes of coverage on TV for the entire sport, perhaps back then, or, or, and people just don't understand. And so what you said, that's not just the women that were feeling that way. It was the guys too. You know, it's all of us. So we, I guess I, I I feel like,
1: you know, I wrote five chapters of that book. I got a super, you know, caught up in it. And yeah. I I felt like it was a validation.
0: Yeah.
1: That, you know, that we didn't have, you know, the coaching that's exists today. We didn't have the funding. We didn't have the opportunity. But what we did, despite it all, we were still out there fighting. And had we had you know, what the women have today. I, I mean, I truly believe that any one of us 53 skiers deserve to be there. And that we, we could have done better, but the circumstances were, were rough. And, you know, it's, I guess it was a way to work through the shame and to work through the, yeah, just to work through it. And it also made me feel connected to the other skiers, whether they had skied before me or after me, they felt the same way. And to the ones who also had success, I felt a connection, and hopefully they feel connected to us and and to our stories. But I I I you know I think that the book does that, and being part of the book does that. And I'm um, I hope people read it. I think it's people I've talked to who read it just go, wow, you know this is so interesting and and so we never knew, you know, a lot of this stuff.
0: I'm definitely going to read it. I haven't read it yet. I haven't got a copy of it yet, but I am going to read it and I'll get a copy and I'm excited about it.
1: Yeah. And I
0: understand why it's important to you. And uh, honestly, after listening to why it's important to you, it's equally important to me, Mm -hmm. not only because of the journey that women have gone through, but it also represents to me the journey that U.S. skiing has gone through because I had (laughs) the same thoughts and feelings and experiences you did.
1: Mm -hmm. Yes. U.S. skiing that just the you know, the trajectory is, it's, it's pretty obvious in the book. And, and I can't, I think too, you know, the, it was very healing. You know, I would be in phone conversations with people who just were down and out after, you know, they didn't want to talk about it or they're, and you just, you know, it was healing to talk, to finally bring out the story about my team losing that relay after I worked so hard to put us in position. And I needed to talk about it. You know, I'm tired of not saying anything or, you know, you want to just, it, it feels good to, all these years later to be able to put stuff on the table and look at it. And I think many of the people involved who did it, I mean, we did have a few people who wouldn't participate. They were, you know, who knows what happened, but and I'm sad about that. But so many of us connected and I have all these new friends and cool. yeah, it's, it's awesome. <laughs>
0: that sounds like a really... Important project on a whole bunch of different levels. And I'm excited Absolutely. about it too. Absolutely. So I have a question for you. I don't know if you spent enough time or any quality time around other nest team athletes in a training environment to know this or not, but it goes along with the feeling like a failure thing and trying to figure out what the heck was going on. Uh, I noticed that I had a higher VO max than most of my competitors in the world cup. And I was a faster runner than almost all of my competitors in the World Cup. And I was stronger in many ways than, but then there were, then I would notice, okay, get my ass handed to me because, and the reason because depended on what nation I was talking about. Like if I compared myself to the Germans, I was the weakest. I was weak compared Mm -hmm. to the Germans. They were incredibly strong, inhumanely strong. Mm -hmm. But if I compared myself to another country, they just became extremely fit at different times of the year, you know, (laughs) like really fast and really fit. But on a training level, I could, I could out train them. I could, I could out ski them. I mean, there's just weird things going on that obviously um, indicated doping. Did you ever have some kind of weird idiosyncrasies like that, where you were like, wait a minute, how come these people are faster than because I'm better at this, this and this, and they are some, you know, VO max is hard to get around. Did you ever have those, Were you ever close enough to get those experiences?
1: Not really, but once in a while, you know, like in say, you know, like a little bit more of the off season, you know, like, Oh, maybe polar cup or whatever. I would start beating some of these people and just going, well, that's weird. You know, what, what, you know, and I know they were out there racing. So, you know, it would make you think that they were not, whatever their you know supplement schedule was was you know maybe they weren't doing it then and and so that would be it kind of kept me going a little bit because I go okay if we're both like on a level playing field on this particular day I'm I'm there you know and it would be feel good and that was kind of silly I felt really trivial about those little victories but you know once in a while it would happen and you know, some Finns would come over and do our spring series or something. And I'd go, wow, you know, I beat that person every time, you know, over here and right. something, you know, yeah. So
0: yeah. So um, I guess if it works for you, I'd like to kind of move on and ask you some questions mm-hmm. and, and hopefully people will learn from these questions. I'm, I'm excited to hear what your answers might be. One of them would be, Do you have any general advice for parents of junior skiers? You're uniquely qualified to comment on that.
1: Yeah, you know, I was never a junior skier, so it's hard to picture what feeling like a junior skier is. But but you've been a
0: parent of a junior skier and you've coached junior skiers for decades. So I think you're very qualified and I'm excited to hear your answer.
1: I guess, you know, give your kids the opportunities that they want and need when they're when they're younger, so that they when they come to skiing on their own and they choose that as a sport, that they really love it and that they're doing it for the right reason. And I think that you know, if you just do skiing, that's that's not enough. But you have to have a more well-rounded background. And, and so having lots of chances to do different things. And I know my own daughter did a lot of things before she chose skiing and she really wanted to do it and that of course made me very happy but she was doing it for the right reasons so that's one thing um you know support your kids I think when kids get disappointed in their results as juniors it's not you know what they do one year isn't going to be what they do the next year it's just kids change and grow at different rates and things like that I think one of my pet peeves is if you do put your kid in a skiing program at a club or whatever, and you, they want to do it and they want to be there and you, and they're expecting some success, allow them the opportunity to have that success and let go and let the coaches do the, you know, handle it, you know, make some decisions, but also, you know, I have some kids who get disappointed and I'm like, wow, well, you know, your parents took you on a vacation to this or that, and you didn't train for these weeks you know let don't take opportunity
0: away if they want it don't sabotage them (laughs) don't
1: sabotage and then be disappointed and then have them be disappointed so you don't like yeah and it's a multi-process multi-year thing and i think people don't realize that you have to stick with it
0: your first point i hope you don't mind if i rephrase it in a way that i identify with and might help more people to uh, i like to consider i like to say make sure that your kids have ownership like skiing should be theirs. Yes, it shouldn't. The parent shouldn't be, for example, establishing standards. What's success? What's what's failure? You know, what's enough? What's not enough? What they can be satisfied with? How much they should train? How serious they should be or not? I don't. I don't think that's the parent's place. I think the parent should be good job and um, try your best or whatever. You know that kind of stuff and and leave that up for the child to um, establish what their own standards are.
1: And I and I also believe that if that's when kids are juniors their opportunity to have um, a bond with another adult that's not a parent this is really great and it really helps them so when they go to college they don't feel you know they feel like you know wow I can go to a professor and after class and ask ask them something and not feel like I don't I can't talk to adults or whatever it's a chance for them to have that bond and I used to get so annoyed when I would you know I send an email to a kid or whatever and the parent is answering and I'm like, no, I need the kid to respond to this. This is our, you know, me communicating with the child and that's a chance for them to, you know, learn how to do that. And so it's, it's more, it's more than skiing. It's yeah. It's, it's letting parents have, have allow the kid, child to have their own experience and, and
0: take ownership and mentors. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here's another question. If you were 18 years old today, and had a passion and aptitude for Nordic ski racing, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, make sure,
1: make sure you, um, understand training and recovery both, (laughs) because I think it's, it's really important that it's not just the training. It's, it's, um, it's recovery. And I think so much more is known about recovery today than, than back when, you know, when I was, well, I wasn't 18, I was 19. But yeah. So understanding all that and also allowing yourself time to develop and 18 is still really young and, and there's people don't peak until they're in their twenties or thirties even. So if you really have, have a passion for the sport, allow yourself the time to develop and don't, Don't give up if you have a bad year at 18. That's my advice.
0: Cool. I have two more questions for you. Um, What is something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out?
1: Ooh, well, I'm not very interesting.
0: Yes, Um, you are. And that's why (laughs) I wanted to ask you this question, because you're really interesting and fascinating.
1: Ooh, something about me. That might surprise people. I like cats. I have three cats and a dog, but I really, I like cats. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know if that's surprising or not, but um, I don't know. I've been in a book club for 30 years, the same book club. So um, I'm a, I'm an avid reader and um, yeah, share that with this group of people and as well as all of my um, outdoor pursuits, I'm still very much a mountaineer, you know, active in the mountains and, all that but um people probably don't know that i'm also book one
0: yeah so the mountaineer thing i know that of course and there's nothing surprising about that that fits not really fits the bold but it's also it's a, it's a wonderful thing and something i continue to look up to you for your ability to stay active and persevere and how's your shoulder by the way shoulder it's it's good enough
1: it's it's better That's than exactly
0: so you before had a uh, was it maybe two years ago now, or is it even, even three years ago now that you oh, had a year, operation?
1: year and a half rotator oh, okay. cuff surgery. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's okay. it's not
1: a hundred percent, but it's better than it was before surgery. So
0: cool. yeah. yeah. Um, so last question: Do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? If so, can you please tell us and explain?
1: I, I mean, I guess it's, you know just keep going. I mean, that, it, that applies to so many things you do in, in your life. And you know, I mean, it sounds really cliched, but it, it is kind of what, you know, you run into bumps in the road and you just have to keep going, keep your eye on the prize. You know, what, what are you trying to do? Where are you trying to go? It's just dumb persistence. And That applies to ski racing it applies to well you know when I was writing chapters in that book I was like what am I doing I'm why did I say I would do this and I'm like just keep writing just keep you know writing it rereading it keep going and then you'll you'll come up with something that's that you're proud of so if that's if that's what you do yeah
0: cool I I, that answer matches you because I think it if you don't mind me saying, I think in many ways it defines you as an athlete and as a person, you've got a lot of strengths and interesting things about you, but um, I think you're about as determined and in, in, um, your perseverance, to me anyway, is kind of legendary. And so it only it's only fitting that that's the thing that you have um, as a mantra, I think.
1: Yeah. In fact, I just, I don't even know where I read this somewhere. I was, someone said something that I was never a very good Technical skier, and that I just never gave up. And I thought, wow, okay, that's maybe that is me.
0: <laughs> I did read that and I was going to ask you about it, but then I thought uh, to me, that's always been a compliment. Uh, and I was, this is what I was going to ask you people have said to me for years back in the day um, that I wasn't talented, but it was hard work. And I always looked at it as the biggest compliment I could possibly get. Instead of being some flash in the pan talented kid didn't work that hard, uh, I'll take that um I I I like it when people recognize that I might not be as talented as many but I actually ground it out and worked quite hard that to me is a real compliment I imagine you feel the same way
1: I do yeah and I I recognize that in you too Ian
0: cool thank you I I like that that's a huge compliment someone tells me I'm talented and I worked really hard to get what I got I'm like thank you for noticing
1: fair enough yeah it is it is something to be proud of
0: yeah cool um Because that's character and it's determination and it's decisions, um, talent, you know, I'd love to be more talented, but, um, you don't choose to be talented. You choose to develop your talents and you choose to pursue your goals and to make sacrifices and to, um, to fight for what you, what you, what you value. And that's something that, that I think we share. And those are great attributes.
1: Yeah. Thank you. And I agree.
0: Cool. Well. Um, is there anything else that is unsaid before we wrap up?
1: No, I mean, this has been really, it's been funny and talking to you and I don't know. We've talked about a lot and thank you for your mention of, of the book. And I think, you know, when, if people read that, they'll understand a lot more about the history of, of our sport. And I, you know, like I said, that's, thanks for bringing it up because I'm super proud of that achievement.
0: Cool. You should be. So it's been a real treat for me to be able to have this discussion with you. Two years ago, Pearl, my daughter, and I saw you skiing. I think it was up at Soldier Hollow. And I was so grateful to be able to introduce her to you and to say to her, this is someone that I have looked up to and always looked up to, and is about as great a role model as you could ever find. Um, And I said that to my own daughter. So I can say that to the general public, and I think you know I'm being sincere. If you have the opportunity to get to know Nancy or to read about her in her book or to maybe listen to this interview with your kid or whatever, I'd recommend doing it because uh, this is someone I look up to very much and and appreciate. I hope that this interview will help others make that connection and both learn from you and be inspired by you. And I will look forward to seeing you, Nancy, around hopefully soon. I don't know when that's going to be, but...
1: um... I'm always turning up somewhere, Ian.
0: Cool. Well, hopefully I'll be turning up too. I hope so. I do. Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Ian.